Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 23rd of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The average cost of childcare is €715 a month in County Louth. In County Meath, it costs €841 a month. And in Dublin, parents pay an average of €1,276 per month for childcare. Fees in Ireland are the second highest across the OECD. But the age-old question no one seems to be able to answer is... Where does all of that money go? Well, it's not to the childminders. This week, 40% of people working in the sector told a SIP2 survey they want to leave because of low pay and, they say, they're actively seeking another job. SIP2 says that without much-needed reforms, these people will not remain working in the sector over the coming years. They do not have enough time for breaks. They're doing unpaid work. They're carrying out training in their own time and they're coping with the ongoing consequences of low pay, no savings and no rainy day fund. The finders uh, of uh, the the union says that most people are looking for another job and most are not certain that they'll be in the sector in five years from now and if the issues reported in the survey are not resolved, the sector will continue to face into crisis. Let's speak about uh, this with uh, the leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bakic. The Labour Party believes that the for-profit market-driven model of childcare in this country should be replaced by one which which is state-led and universal. Uh, a very good morning to you, Ivana Bakic, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. How would you make such a transformation? Well, good morning, Michael, and thank you for the invitation to be on the programme this morning. And as you say, it is at a time when we've just seen these very stark results from SIP2's Big Start campaign 
uh, staffing and pay survey of, of those working in early years care and education and childcare. And it does reveal, as you say, really serious problems in the sector. But, you know, we all know this. I know this as a public representative. I hear every day from constituents in Dublin Bay South, but this is widespread across the country. It's not just local to me. Constituents who are desperately seeking uh, a place for their child. I heard yesterday from a couple living in my own area who uh, are expecting their first baby next month. Mm. And it should be a happy and exciting time. But they're absolutely at their wit's end trying to find not just an affordable place, but any place in a in an early years a childcare facility for the child to to ensure that they can you know, the mother can return to work. So this is very causing a lot mm. of people with anxiety and distress. And I, you've read out those figures mm-hmm. again, very stark: twelve hundred euro per month average childcare fees in Dublin and a, a similar around the country. So what can be done to change it? Well, we in Labour, as you say, have have put forward a proposal for a radical change in childcare provision and in how we see early years education. I've described this as a sort of Donna O'Malley moment and your listeners may, some some will be old enough to recall that when uh, Donna O'Malley was Minister 50 years ago for education, he made this radical intervention to uh, ensure that every child in Ireland would be guaranteed a free secondary school place and that was at a time when it was, there was an expectation that mm. many children would simply leave school after primary and wouldn't go on to secondary. Yeah, and I think I as an announcement was, came as a great surprise to the government of the day as well. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Infamously, mm. that's mm. right. Yes, mm. he didn't mm. consult. But sometimes that sort of radical vision is needed and when we look at other countries around Europe and you've said again Ireland is very poor in terms of our placing within the OECD our, our childcare fees are really high we've relied far too long on the sort of ad hoc piecemeal private provider provision and it, or system and it's really failing you know parents who are paying high fees it's failing those working in the sector who are earning very low wages it's failing providers who tell me they can't make ends meet either which is why some you know creches are closing and then of course most of all it's failing children so that Donna O'Malley vision is now needed where we would say and this is what we in Labour say, we would say every child in Ireland should have and should have a right to a a free, publicly provided childcare and early years place, just as we now just presume that every child is entitled to a free free primary and indeed Mm. secondary place. So that's the sort of vision we need. Now, It's not particularly visionary, is it? I mean, it's duplicating what's done in Scandinavia, for example. I mean, it really shouldn't be seen as a radical intervention, but it would require, uh, uh, I think it would require the setting out of that sort of vision at this point so that we could Mm. see this is how we get there. Now, we've put forward, and we we put it forward indeed in our alternative budget last year, we put forward a proposal to roll this out on an incremental basis. We accept that, you know, there would have to be a series of changes made, the state, but the state is already putting a great deal of money in, and indeed during COVID, all put a great deal more into subsidising childcare places and yet we still don't have any guarantee that any child in my constituency or in Laos and uh, my colleague Deputy Jed Nash's constituency of your, your, your own listeners you know it, it, there's no guarantee that any child in those areas will be able to get a childcare place so we do need to change the system now there are some positive signs and we very much welcome that uh, and SIP2 indeed in their survey published yesterday of their early year staff they also acknowledge this that you know we are seeing now a pay agreement for the first time which is very important to pay deal for early years professionals because you know low pay is a really serious issue across the sector uh, and we're seeing a linkage of a new core funding model to the pay in other words requiring creche owners to uh, pay decent wages to, uh, in return for enhanced government funding so this is a, a certainly a positive step but we need a far more uh, I suppose 
a far more uh, clear vision as to where this will go. And that's where we are calling for this universal public system of childcare. We've called it the equal early years model that would guarantee affordability for parents and that would guarantee fair pay mm. for those engaged in the sector and, of course, would also guarantee a place for uh, for, for children. Who OK, and what would that mean in terms of cost for the first child? Uh, are we talking about similar fees of between eight and 1200 no, that would be a crucial a crucial part of this measure that we're proposing of our new scheme would be capped fees in the first instance for parents. So, uh, and I think again, you know, to be fair to the government, they are pushing, they are seeking to freeze these, but, but a freeze is simply not good enough because fees are unacceptably high. I mean, as you say, €715 Euro per month on average in Laos, over 1200 per month in Dublin. I mean, again, as I say, I meet families every day who are simply unable to afford this. So we need to ensure that fees are capped at an, afford, at an affordable level. What, 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 can, can you put a figure on that? We're still working on it because we're going okay. to be producing mm. a, um, a big, a proper costing for our alternative okay. budget over the coming weeks. But I think, uh, Michael, if you look elsewhere, and I, you know, I recently visited uh, uh, friends in Berlin, and you know, childcare fees, and your listeners will mm. perhaps gasp when they hear thirty euro a week. Mm. Uh, you know, that's that's the sort of heavily subsidised costing that uh, you know model that we see in other European countries, where ch- where a real value is put okay. on state on so, state subsidising. So you're, you're talking about bringing down an average cost of around 200 a week dramatically. Uh, and I think that's what's needed, yes. Right. Uh, uh, and um, what about people who have more than one child, uh, if you have two or five children? This, this again, is a very serious issue. And again, I know from many, uh, invo- many friends and neighbours that Quite frequently what we see, particularly because of the gender pay gap, is women simply leaving the workforce on the birth of a second or third or fourth child because mm. childcare fees become so, so high at that or point. Or deciding, deciding not to have children. Absolutely, or mm. postponing mm. children. Yeah. 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 Some years ago I did a study on postponed parenting where we looked at how people are putting off, women are putting off having children because of, partly because of this, this real concern. And clearly this is appalling in, you know, in modern mm. Ireland and modern society that we have this sort of scenario. So women and men should be supported in having families and having children and the state should see it as an investment because if we don't invest in early years education then we're creating an unequal system for children right from the start and you know it means then that children who start primary school who haven't had the advantage of early years education are behind in terms of, of, of development behind in terms of speech development and language development and this is you know this all clearly has repercussions for all of society. So just as Don O'Malley mm. saw okay. the importance of guaranteeing secondary education for everyone, so too should we be moving towards seeing this as an investment in our future. OK, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to interpret what you're saying to mean that you're going to bring the cost of childcare down to between 30 and €100 Euro a week instead of €200 plus a week. Well, I think certainly it needs to be radically reduced. As yeah, I say, well, we're working it, it, on our costing okay. currently, and we're waiting, I should say. Sure, yeah. yeah but we, we don't have the access government do to figures, but we're waiting on costing from government. Okay, though, that, that, you'd, be ho- you'd be hoping to be able to make a statement similar to that. Yes. Uh, and, okay. and that there would be places for all. Uh, so the government would fund um, <laughs> the gap between the €30 Euro and the €200, Euro, if you like. How, how would you create more spaces? 
Well, again, I think with what we're seeing, and again, there are moves in the right direction by government. What we're seeing is with this core funding model, a guarantee of higher, of more um, consistent subsidies to, to providers to try and keep providers um, open, to try and ensure that they will enhance and and uh, and and um, expand their facilities. So that's the basis of the government's core funding model. So we support that because I think that is important. Uh, but what we want to see is a much more radical expansion of that. So you know. Looking again at our, how our primary and secondary systems work, it's not that the state provides the education. The state doesn't run schools. You know, these schools are run, mm. as we all know, by boards of management, by local patrons, and so on. And it's in the same way, but but the child's education, each place is subsidised by the state capitation grant or okay. is paid for by the state capitation grant and the state also pays salaries. So that's the sort of model we need to see introduced for early years education. So it's not that the state directly provides the education mm. or the care, rather the state subsidises the yeah. provision. You, you pay somebody else to provide it and, and you subsidise the salaries of those people to bring them out of uh, that low pay uh, cohort. Um, can the Labour Party be trusted on this? Well, we have had a consistently good record in uh, terms of pushing for enhanced provision for children. We've uh, uh, been looking, for example, for a, a new legislation to address the real scourge of mm. child homelessness and child poverty. And uh, my colleague Aon Arirgan has an absolutely stellar record as our education spokesperson okay. on pushing for, for example, for a catch-up for children scheme during COVID, which, again, we were disappointed the minister didn't uh, respond to with sufficient generosity. And we're seeing now, again, just this week reports that children, children's development did suffer during COVID and that we didn't put in place, or government didn't put in place enough support to address that. So, and we've seen that done in other countries where they did put in place catch-up for children schemes to try and address the mm. impacts of school closures over long periods. So I think we've got a very strong record on child rights. We're a party that has always, actually the oldest political party in the state, mm. and we've always been serious about delivering change. So okay, we have I know, but government. we I understand what you're saying, but we, we, yes. we, we've been talking about a Scandinavian-style model of childcare for the last 10 minutes or, or so. Yes. In 2011, your predecessor, the Taunasha and Minister for Social Protection at the time, Joan Burton, uh, said that she was going to cut the one family payment to about 40,000 lone parents uh, at uh, the stage where a child turned seven. But she said she'd only proceed with those measures to reduce the upper age limit to seven in the event that I get a credible and bankable commitment on delivery of such a system of childcare enjoyed by the Scandinavians by the time of this year's budget. If that is not forthcoming, the measure will not proceed. The measure did proceed, maybe in 2015, but we still don't have that Scandinavian style of childcare. And I suppose what makes a big difference in Scandinavia is that you've had social democratic and left-wing governments there. You've had parties in Scandinavian countries across uh, Northern Europe, indeed. You've had parties of the left who have been sufficient, who have had sufficient support to form governments, to dominate those governments, and to bring in the sort of public services, you know, things like publicly funded childcare that we we mm. aspire to here. But this was a Labour Party Never, minister. This was. She, Yes, and the you're leader of the all, Labour Party, the Tanisha at the time, promised well, not in not in 2011, but but in 2011 mm. certainly when Labour entered government as a minority partner in coalition. No, but in 2015, when the cut when the cut was made in 2015, Joan Burton was the Tanisha, uh, and that promise was not fulfilled. 
and we pushed very hard for it to be fulfilled. But I think your listeners will recall that in 2011, the outgoing Fianna Fáil Green government had bankrupted the country, that the country was, uh, that Ireland at the time was thrall to the Troika and that uh, the public finances were in an appalling state and certainly in 2016 when Labour left government when that government I know the stock answer but that that was the context in which Joan Burton made the promise to introduce a Scandinavian style model of childcare and we're still pushing for that to be introduced. And I think the reality is that we've had wasted years of prosperity since 2016 when the public finances were uh, had been restored to a much more healthy state. We've seen wasted years, six wasted years since then, where we haven't seen the sort of investment in early years education that would really make a difference to the lives of children and indeed to Irish society more generally because that's... That re- that creation of free secondary education really, in ha- you know, makes such a huge difference to ensuring Irish prosperity and Irish growth and development over the decades since. Okay. So that's the sort of model we now okay. need to see. Uh, uh, and uh, certainly, the wasted years of prosperity have to be laid at the door of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who have been in government since then. Okay. Fine Gael propped up by Fianna Fáil until 2020, and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil together since uh, 20 since uh, since since 2020. So look, you know, okay. just just if I, if, I, if, I could, if, if I could move on because uh, while you're with us uh, just a, a couple of other questions that I, I'd like to ask you Ivana Bakic uh, as uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party as you said you're uh, preparing um, for the budget uh, and costing this proposal I'm sure you're doing a, a lot of work in, prepare, in preparation for the resumption of the doll. when the doll does resume do you believe that Robert Troy will be in office? Well, I certainly think he should make a statement to the doll, and my, Anna Reardon has said that. I think that uh, there's been a serious, uh, um, very serious questions remain to be answered as to why there were such uh, anomalies, such omissions to, decla- to, to declare interest in FICO returns over such a long period. Uh, we have seen a sort of drip feed, I think, of, of revelations. And I, I, I think at this point we need a, a, a very clear statement as to what went on. And I think that statement needs to be made to the doll. It's You know, the doll isn't going to be sitting again to the 14th of September. And it now looks like, the, you know, there may still be more drip, more uh, a further drip feed between now and then. But we need to have this matter cleared up once and for all. OK. As you understand it, do you believe his position is tenable? Uh, I think it's becoming... Uh, I, I think it's becoming more and more difficult to see how he can explain these discrepancies. Okay. Uh, can I ask you about energy and if uh, the lights will or won't be on come uh, this winter and the situation that we're in? Uh, you're saying uh, that there should be a, an immediate ban on licensing data centres. Yes, we've called for a pause uh, on the um, approval of new data centres while, uh, while we seek to see how we can... Uh, how we can ensure that supply is guaranteed, how we can ensure energy security, given the you know, enormously increasing use of, of energy by data centres already. Uh, and that's been a real cause of concern. There are proposals to enable data centres to become self-generating, self um, uh, you know, to, to, to self-generating, in other words, that they would generate their own power. And there's some proposals on that, but I think we need to see greater clarity on that. And, you know, this has been the subject of quite extensive debate in the Dáil, and we've supported calls, and indeed across the opposition there's been support for calls for calls and data centres while we look at this. But yesterday what I did also call for was for... Um, 
the government to step up and take greater responsibility. There's been a sort of strange uh, um, aspect to governmental statements in recent days where the Taoiseach was saying, well, we should have an early warning system. You know, the government are not bystanders in this. They must take responsibility for the fact that we didn't have any early warning system in place and yet we're suddenly facing into this crisis in energy supply and a crisis in energy security. And to appoint Dermot McCarthy as a uh, to conduct a review, while it's welcome, it's very late in the day because it now appears impossible for him to report until the end of the year, by which time we'll already have had several months of winter. And we don't, we simply don't have a guarantee there'll be sufficient energy supply to get us through, if it, particularly if it's a very cold winter, and particularly with the horrendously rising cost of fuel and energy for so many households, which is really biting in. So we've made a number of proposals for government which we believe should be adopted, including the introduction of a windfall tax on profits made by energy companies. And again, this is something we've seen in other countries. And I think it's an effective way of, it would be an effective way of ensuring that, that energy companies aren't simply, uh, I, I suppose, simply exploiting people mm. um, with the rising costs. I mean, clearly there are issues here that are beyond... Yeah. Uh, Antonio Guterres uh, described it as a moral profits because they're profits on top of uh, the profits they would otherwise make. That's right. I mean, essentially, it's racketeering. And it's interesting mm. to see the UN Secretary General coming out on this. But I think it's very clear. And I think mm. everyone sees this. And it, it would be, a, I think, a very important move for government to make. So while there are factors like the brutal invasion of Ukraine by Russia that are beyond governmental control, there are measures that can be taken to address rising costs for, for families and households here. There are national measures that can be taken, like a tax on windfall profits. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. That's uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Ivana Bakic. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, continuing on from where we left off a minute ago there, the cost of energy is increasing at a rapid rate and there is no doubt about that and there is no doubt that it's causing all sorts of problems. It certainly seems uh, to be behind uh, the job losses at Premier Perry Glaze or the fear that all of the jobs will be lost in the next month or so because of the increase in the international price of gas. That seems to be at least why the company has put the workers on notice. The unions as you've heard previously have asked the government to intervene and to subvent the company through state aid. And if you were listening to us yesterday, you'd have heard that the government has secured approval for state aid from the EU Commission on the 11th of August and that was following a notification from the Department of uh, Enterprise at the end of June. There is state aid uh, and that on the 14th of August the government got the consent of the European Union to have a fund of 200 million euros for such state aid. But the problem is, Michael, that whatever whatever system will be in place won't be in place for some time. And that's the difficulty. That's Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael TD, for Loud speaking to us yesterday. We can speak once again to Tom Fitzgerald, the Regional Coordinating Officer for the United Trade Union. A very good morning to you, Tom. And thanks indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it seems uh, as though this is close, but not close enough, if you listen to Fergus o- O'Dowd speaking yesterday, saying that the money will not be in place or, or the uh, permission, if you like, to make the money available to Premier Perry Lays uh, will not be in place in time for saving the company. Thanks, Michael, and good morning to you and your listeners. Yes, uh, since we spoke last week, I suppose we've had a mix of good news and bad news. 
uh, where we contacted the Tarnish on a number of occasions asking for him to intervene directly uh, and communicate back to the workers and the worker representatives. Now, unfortunately, he hasn't done that, but he has engaged with the company on four of our requests, uh, and that has given rise to some of the state agencies engaging with the company to try and find some solutions. Uh, and that's positive, albeit a bit disappointing and I think a bit disrespectful that there's no communication directly back to the workers because it's ourselves here in the public domain trying to uh, resolve matters here in a primary paraglaze and also bring to the government's attention the uh, energy crisis uh, that we're facing into uh, and the implications over the coming months. But nonetheless, some positive engagement. But where the bad news comes in, is when we actually start to see the nature of that engagement. And uh, I'm uh, I'm not in the room, if you like, Michael, uh, but some of the feedback that we're getting is somewhat concerning, notwithstanding the best of efforts, to be fair, uh, from those state agencies. But we're advised that uh, the company has been indicated that there's a basis for funding here, um, outside of some of those larger schemes that we talked that, that uh, Deputy O'Dell spoke about, but a specific funding uh, from Enterprise Ireland. But it seems there's a constraint on the state agencies like Enterprise Ireland um, in terms of how they can give support. The support has to go uh, to effectively uh, offsetting the cost of energy, effectively paying the gas or electricity bills. Uh, and rather than being able to use it to maintain jobs, maintain wages, protect uh, jobs over time. And from our point of view, uh, and from the company's point of view, actually, and not that I'm speaking on behalf of the company by any means, uh, that's an incorrect approach. Uh, It's effectively fueling the demand side of uh, the energy crisis, uh, where actually what you should be doing is actually trying to kill demand uh, and giving money on the basis of actually, do you know what, pay uh, more to, to energy companies is the equivalent of, I suppose, you know, mm. throwing petrol onto a fire to try and put it out. Okay. It's, it's, it's an incorrect approach, but, but also, secondly, this is actually probably the most concerning uh, I- I- piece of information that we found out. It seems that that point that Fergus O'Dell was talking about there, and to be fair to himself and other politicians in the locality, to be very helpful and very engaged. That temporary crisis uh, framework scheme, uh, the, the research that we've done into it, seems that there was two schemes available. One that would allow for up to two million of state aid to be provided, uh, and one that was allow up to twenty-five million of state aid provided. Different countries throughout Europe pick different options. The Irish government picked the smaller option, the two million. Uh, so that's concerning why they would do that because we said in our press release yourselves last week that this is part of a much, much bigger problem. There's an energy crisis that we really feel the brunt of later on in the year going into the winter months, not just for Premier Paraglias, not just for uh, 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 companies, but for the entire country. And so this is very concerning, the short-sighted nature of this from the government um, in terms of the two options that were available to them. And I, 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 I'm not saying that that's done by design, Mm. But, but there's fundamental policy mistakes being made here, and that's what the Premier Paraglades experience is showing up. There's a fundamental policy being made. There's an element of government. Uh, it, feels, it feels like they're sleepwalking into this energy crisis. OK, but I, I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I thought the biggest obstacle uh, to following through with uh, the plan agreed in the High Court to, to save the company was the cost of energy, the gas bills. If the government 
pays the gas bills or helps to pay the gas bills, can that not save the company? And if not, why not? It can, of course. It can help. But actually, the more sensible approach that's been well, well ventilated with state agencies from the, the companies, the more sensible course of action is, is rather than giving funding to continue paying gas bills, they would give funding to protect jobs with a company like Premier Paraglaze that's viable, viable now to the long term, but we have a short term difficulty arising from that. And the, the, the company are effectively saying, listen, don't give us that money for uh, 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 paying mm. gas and, and other energy bills. What that will do will just make a bad situation worse. And it's actually not an appropriate use of taxpayers' money. What the appropriate use is, is to be more flexible and say, let's protect the jobs over the coming months until there's a wider strategy to deal with this energy crisis or, or the situation actually changes. Okay. That's, it's nuanced, uh, um, Michael, yeah, but, no, fair but enough. it's important nuance to understand because at the heart of it, right, at the heart of is the incorrect approach in terms of state policy. What's happening in PPL is the thin end of a very, very wide uh, energy crisis wedge. And in some ways, uh, uh, PPL will be the test of the government in this crisis. And, and, and we would argue, uh, we would argue, our research is telling us that this is akin to the, to the health crisis, uh, to, the, to the financial crisis that we experienced back in, in 2008 and onwards, and that there needs to be um, a serious intervention by government here. And in many ways, PPL is, is like the, the canary uh, in the coal mine in terms of the test of government's policy in this. If you don't get it right with PPL, it's unlikely they're going to get it right elsewhere across the economy. And because at the moment, Fuel and demand, and I'm not an economist and I pretend to be, but economists and researchers that talk to me say to me the fuel and demand, all it's going to do is make the situation worse. Well, what you actually have to do is try and dampen down demand because you'll have a situation where uh, there's uh, incentives for big energy unit users to use more energy, to get more government, su- government subvention, mm. and that will actually, you'll have a situation where big companies will be competing with pensioners in the winter months for energy. Okay. And at the heart of this is an incorrect approach from government. All right, nuanced or otherwise, I suppose uh, the discussion about the approach is based on the assumption that the money is there. And listening to Fergus O'Dowd speaking yesterday, it seems as though the money won't be in place in time to save uh, the jobs in Premier Perry Clays. Well, when we were on your show last week, Michael, we were the ones had done the research and said that the government does a fund here at European level that can be tapped into. No one had else has said that. And we're saying now this week, great, the fund is there. Well, let's find a way to expedite that. Let's find a way to do that. For example, is there something that can be done to support Premier Perry Clays? In a bridging sense, for example, that actually if the funding can't be drawn down for another month or two because of, you know, genuine bureaucratic difficulties, fair enough, what can we do between then and now? It can't be a case of, well, listen, the, the money will be there down the road, and sure, if the time was right, we'd be able to save the jobs. Um, that's, that's not acceptable. There needs to be something better than that. Okay. We leave there for the moment, Tom. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Tom Fitzgerald is uh, the Regional Coordinating Officer with uh, the United Trade Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, tributes are being paid to a 29-year-old Dylan McCarthy who lost his life in hospital, as I'm sure you heard yesterday, following a melee in Monaster Revan. Uh, himself, his father and another man were attacked by a group of men, it seems. Uh, let's uh, speak to Stephen Breen, who's crime editor with uh, The Irish Sun. A very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. What happened in Monaster Revan? Well, on Sunday, 
Um, Dylan McCarthy, who's originally from Kilmallock in County Limerick, but had been living in Cork, was in Monaster Evan with his uh, father, Eamon, and a number of friends, and they were celebrating uh, the birth of his nephew. They went to a pub in Monaster Evan on Sunday evening, and during the course of the evening, there was some kind of altercation that had taken place. There was some kind of row. That row then um, spilled on to the street around 12.15, uh, 12.30, and during the, the altercation outside the premises at this time, nearly hours of then, uh, Sunday morning there, there was an assault. Uh, Dylan was, was punched and kicked um, by a number of men. His father was also uh, attacked and a friend was also injured. And Dylan was brought to Tala Hospital suffering from uh, serious head injuries. His father suffered facial in- injuries. He was brought to Port Leash Hospital, but the other friend didn't need any uh, any medication or, or any issue to go to hospital. But um, sadly, uh, Dylan, because of the nature of the attack and brought to hospital, he lost his life yesterday. Mm. It sounds as though it was particularly vicious. He had a number of individuals involved, and Gardy will be looking to speak to and identify those involved primarily in the attack on Dylan because he was punched. Mm. Uh, by a number of men, he was also kicked as well. And uh, I think, you know, the, the guards uh, have launched out a full investigation, and in, in, that they you would normally see associated with a murder inquiry. Obviously, they're awaiting the results of the postmortem, and um, to establish uh, how Dylan actually died. Did he die from a blow to the head, or did he die when he fell? Perhaps so. It's, it's certainly based on the investigation, but it, it was a savage assault, and a lot of people around at the time. There were at least uh, thirty people in the pub. Gardy would will be hoping to speak to those individuals as well, just in trying to establish, you know, the events leading up to the assault, which took place outside the pub. Mm, it's a very small town, isn't it? Uh, I think the population is just a little over four thousand. It's not the kind of place that you'd expect this kind of thing to happen. Not normally, no. It's it's a very quiet place. I've um, been there before um, myself, and um, it's a very close knit community there. And the local people there are, are shocked that, that this has happened. Um, it's not something you normally associate with in, in bigger towns and cities uh, across Ireland, but it was a very violent attack on Dylan as he celebrated the birth of his nephew. And um, people are rightly stunned, as are people from Dylan's hometown in Kilmallock and also where he was living in, in County Cork. So uh, the focus now is on apprehending those responsible for this terrible incident. Mm. If anybody is to be uh, apprehended, uh, as you, you say, uh, it's quite possible uh, that he, he fell and banged his head off uh, the pavement. If that's the case, um, what would that mean for the investigation? Well, they could look at a number of different options in terms of the investigation, and that could be uh, incidents of violent disorder, because there were a large number of people involved in uh, the assault on Dylan and his father outside on the street. Also, assault causing harm. And indeed, uh, manslaughter, if it is proven that, you know, his death was the result of a blow to the head uh, caused by a punch or a kick. So there are a lot of options open to the guard investigation team at the moment. But, you know, I know that they're looking at anyone who was involved in the state outside the pub and anyone who was involved in this assault will face a serious charge. It might not be murder, but it will be a serious charge. Mm. Uh, And it seems as though um, there was quite a few men uh, who were punching and kicking uh, the three men um, uh, and of course Dylan uh, ended up getting the worst of it but let's say 
10 men were involved in the assault on Dylan. Uh, would they all be equally guilty of whatever charges are, are, are upheld, if any charges are upheld? Yeah, well, we've seen these incidents before, especially in Dublin, where you know a number of men have been involved in assaults that have attacked you know one individual. So I think we've already examined the CCTV footage uh, from the pub. CCTV footage that have also gathered, you know, from other uh, premises in the village as well, from dash cam footage too, and also speaking to witnesses who were there, and indeed people in the pub, uh, you know, they, they will try and establish, and each individual suspect they will look at, you know, on an individual basis, and once they do that and complete their investigation, they'll send it by the BPP, and they will look to charge each each one, you know, if they have, have played a role in this death or have been involved in an incident which broke the law. So that could be violent uh, disorder, that, that could be assault, uh, even to be more serious charges. So anyone that was involved, you know, will face, you know, serious uh, problems here in terms of being brought to court. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's very hard to understand um, how something could escalate uh, to the degree that people would become so violent, probably uh, drink involved, given that the venue was a, a pub. But there are obviously people who didn't know each other, given that Dylan, his father uh, and his friends were there to celebrate the birth of his nephew. Yeah, look, that formed part of the Garda investigation as well, when they will speak to everyone who was in the pub. First of all, they have to identify everyone who was in the pub at the time. So that's around 12.15, that was just before closing time. And then obviously anyone who was on the street as well, and Garda was satisfied that there were uh, some incidents in the pub, some guys pushing, shoving, but also got escalated to more serious form of violence um, outside uh, on the street as well. And they'll just try and establish, you know, what did went, uh, go on here, you know, what escalated uh, to this incident taking place outside and, and what started the whole um, lie inside the pub, uh, first of all, too, and just trying to get a mindset of people who were there as well, because I don't think, you know, obviously people are, are in the pub drinking, alcohol's involved, you know, so God, you will look at all the factors as they attempt to establish, you know, the, the reasons behind this uh, and what led to this, um, this uh, terrible incident taking place. Okay, Stephen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. It really is an atrocious story. I think everybody is uh, very taken aback to learn of Dylan's death uh, this morning. But thank you indeed, as I say, for joining us on the programme this morning. Stephen Breen is uh, the crime editor with The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Think Before You Flush is an environmental awareness campaign that asks you to think about what you flush down your toilet. If it doesn't begin with P, well, you're doing something wrong and you could be causing some damage. Elaine Doyle is the Clean Coast campaign officer for Think Before You Flush and she's on the line. A very good morning to you, Elaine, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us a little bit more about your campaign, if you would. So, um, Think Before You Flush was set up a number of years ago as a response to particular rubbish people were finding on the beach. So I work with Clean Coast and we work with tens of thousands of volunteers and one of our biggest aims is trying to keep our coast clean. So volunteers were saying they were finding um, wipes and cotton bud sticks on the beach and they weren't just dropped there by people passing, they were being flushed down the toilet and ending up on the beach. At the same time, um, Irish Water were talking about that the amount of blockages they were getting in their pipe network 
and this was costing time and money and it was meaning that they couldn't run the service as efficiently as possible. So we teamed together and created the Think Before You Flush campaign. Mm. And it's really simple. It's just telling people, as you said, only flush people and paper and everything else like wipes and cotton bud sticks belong in the bin. Okay. The wipes are incredible, aren't they? They just won't disintegrate. There is. I was actually did a lot of reading into wipes recently. Yeah. So well, like, there's very particular what a wasp what is what a wipe can be so like it has to it's meant to disintegrate uh, 75 to 100% upon contact with water but its job is to be to not break down immediately like a toilet paper but to not stay together um like it may be a kitchen towel or something like that that would be stronger so it's non-woven and it's meant to break down but meant to is fine and while they might after a while it just often takes too long and all the wipes clogged together you take um, hair, mm. dental floss, fat soils and greases that come down the sinks. All of that combines together um, to create what is known as a fatberg and it can block pipes. Okay, uh, so when you talk about wipes, you're talking about um, kitchen roll and that sort of thing. Well, it's mainly because it's just the fact that the two lot of wastewater pipes add together. Yeah. So wipes, mainly the ones we're talking about would be ones that be used in the bathroom like baby wipes, facial wipes, mm. wet wipes, any of the wet wipes mm. that people would use and including yeah, the um, the cleaning ones that are used that were used and became very popular during COVID times. Mm. Yeah, they look like tissues, don't they? Uh, and I suppose that's why I was saying they're incredible because those uh, cleaning wipes, the um, ones that you use for sanitising surfaces, uh, they're predominantly plastic, I think. And I, I do a bit of composting and I know that at the beginning of COVID, I thought it'd be okay to put them into the compost until I went to put the compost onto the soil and they were full of the wipes as if they were never touched by anything. They just didn't decompose. Isn't it amazing? Because yeah. we had this, a similar thing with compost. Um, oh, it had said the coffee lid said they could break down yeah. and just when we took out the, the, the compost, you just really see what does and doesn't break down. And those wipes, very like what you said with the compost when we find them on the beach it's like they just came out of the packet yeah. they're a little bit stretched but they're still and they, they often wind together like a rope and can get tangled up in the seaweed mm. which obviously affects the seaweed as well because they weren't meant to be there in the first place nice. and while they're a great product to use because they're convenient people find them very handy if they want to use them um, the problem with convenience is that there's often a price to pay Right. Um, what about the other wipes uh, that are sold as a, an alternative uh, to toilet paper? Um, and a lot of people would use them as toilet paper. Yeah, so some of them are deemed flushable. Right. And I would say they're deemed flushable. Um, the tests that are done by the companies themselves in their own labs, they may be flushable there, but I just they just don't often break down in... Um, a, to- a domestic toilet and there's a simple test you can do if you put a wipe a toilet paper, piece of toilet paper and a flushable wipe into three jars of water and shake them you'll see the toilet paper will straight away break down and the wipe and the flushable wipe might start to break down a bit but not quickly enough and the biggest problem with that is they can clog your toilets right. and even if it says flushable on the packet 
that's not going to be much use when your toilet is clogged and you have to call out a plumber. Okay. I'm, I'm going to take your word on that, by the way. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people will be rushing to do that test themselves, but I'm sure they'll take your word on it. Um, there's a, a lot of problems with uh, sanitary items as well. And I suppose you can understand uh, why uh, women uh, would want to dispose of uh, these items and the toilet may seem an obvious option, but it causes problems as well. It does. And there is... I think uh, younger people now are a bit more informed. Even I was um, talking to somebody in their 40s not that long ago, and they were saying, oh, I always thought you could flush tampons, flush tampons. And I said, it's actually written on the box. But as she said, who looks at the box? Mm -hmm. So there was always a a misconception that you could flush them, and so some people still do. And they seem to disappear because they're smaller, but they they do end up on beaches as well. And as you said, sometimes that can be an issue that uh, a woman or might feel, oh, I want to get rid of this. And if there isn't a bin, toilet seems like the obvious place. But if they're just not meant to go in the toilet and they, they really should just go in the bin. OK, some people might think uh, that it's only men who don't read the box, uh, but that's interesting. Uh, but when it comes to condoms, uh, whether it's men or women uh, who are disposing of them, they cause problems as well if they go down the loop. Exactly, because it is like it is a plastic item. They're not designed to flush so again need to go in the bin because any the big thing to think about with the bin is or the bin with the toilet it's not a bin it's part of our water network so Mm. all our water networks are connected and one way I explain it to kids and obviously this is very simplistic Mm -hmm. is that you want to flush dirty water down the toilet and you have clean water come out the tap and you're cleaning the water so we want to know that the water coming out of our taps is so clean and it's up to us to help not contaminate it with anything that shouldn't be inside there. Mm. Uh, and I suppose um, hair, that's from people clearing out uh, hair brushes and that and they just put it down to lose it? Yeah, and that's one people often didn't don't realise yeah. because hair, like hair is a natural product, it's on your head. And the problem with hair is that if there is already fat bergs from fat soils and greases, that ha- and if there's wipes already there and if there's dental floss already there, the hair wraps itself around all that and kind of binds it together. And also just... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The, the way it kind of mass of hair goes together, it attracts a lot or it keeps in a lot of smell as mm. well. So it just makes it even more unpleasant. Hair is one that really surprises people. And, um, you know, it's probably not a usual occurrence that people are putting hair down the toilet. But when it is, it's clumps from brushes. Okay. And it, it, that does add up as well. Okay, right. Well, I, I'm picking these items out of what you call the dirty dozen, which includes other things uh, like medicine, uh, contact lenses, cigarette butts, cotton bud sticks, things that people uh, may not realise are, are causing damage uh, when they go down the loo. But when they go down the loo, uh, it, it, does it have a detrimental impact on wildlife and fauna and that sort of thing? It can affect water quality because if you think the likes of a contact lens, especially medicine, cigarettes, traditionally these are things that people, like if they were getting rid of them in the bathroom, it seemed like the obvious solution to throw them in the toilet if someone wasn't thinking. But any of these things are breaking down. There's chemicals, there's plastic coming off them. That's going into the water system and it's diluting. But if it's going through enough toilets, that's a lot of extra products diluting going into the water that we want to drink, but also going into the water that's home for uh, wildlife in the water, not only for that wildlife itself, but also, let's say, the likes of fish, if we want to be more selfish about Mm -hmm. it, that we want to ingest. Mm. So you didn't... The thing that the person put down the toilet in the first place, they didn't want it to end up in the fish that was going to end up in themselves. So really, like any education um, promotion, it's just letting people know and then once you have the knowledge, they say knowledge is power and you can do something Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. And I'm sure nobody wants to be eating plastic fish uh, for that matter. So anyway, that's uh, think before you flush. Uh, and the simple way of remembering it is you shouldn't pl- flush anything that doesn't begin with a, a P, the three P's, pee, poo and paper, as you say. Uh, and then you uh, think before you pour, uh, because uh, that can cause problems if people pour the wrong thing down their sink. Yeah, so it's just basically bringing think before you flush out of the bathroom into the kitchen and it's quite a common occurrence when people are cooking to pour things like fats, oils and greases down the drain and it seems to make sense because they do literally pour but from the science side of it and I suppose if you start to think about it a bit more while it seems to pour down your own sink because okay, it is a liquid and often people say follow it with boiling water the thing is it's going to have to go further underground at some stage it's going into the pipe network further those pipes go underground it gets colder those fat oils and greases start to solidify into a jelly form and can no longer flow so they get stuck and that means the pipe can't work and the pipe is one job to get wastewater moving to the wastewater treatment plant and the way to get rid of it is somebody has to manually take out that fatberg which is a horrible job and it's unnecessary as well Mm. so the best thing to do is when you're cooking um let the oils, fat oils and greases um, cool down and pour into a container and then put that in the bin. Yeah, or have a, a little plastic bag in a container and then take the plastic bag out. And, that's uh, exactly it. That's yeah, what I do, mm, put it into a yeah, plastic bag mm, in the container because mm, you don't want to be throwing out containers and mm, they're heavy as yeah. well, adding to the weight of your bin, but it's just a way to get rid of it. Some people have ways to re... Like, you, you wouldn't want to be reusing oil very much and there's very particular ways to do it, but some people have different uses they can have for oils or... Um, but mm. so, realistically, the 
most ideal thing you're going to do is put it in the bin. Yeah, well, uh, apart from the environment uh, and the inconvenience, it can be a costly experience as well if you block a pipe like that. Uh, as you say, it's information for everybody to take on board if uh, they decide to do that. And thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, it's a, an interesting campaign and uh, most worthwhile. Thank you, Elaine, for joining us on the programme as well. Elaine Doyle is the Clean Coasts Campaigns Officer for Think Before You Flush. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, there's been a, a lot of interest in uh, the Lucid Talk poll for the Sunday Times uh, this week on uh, United Ireland. Uh, it's quite possible, if you believe the findings of uh, this poll, uh, that people would vote for uh, United Ireland in the next 15 to 20 years. Uh, people were asked, would they support a United Ireland today or at some point in the future? 41% said they would. In other words, they'd vote for a united Ireland today or sometime in the future. Uh, But then when they were asked if they'd vote uh, in favour of a a united Ireland if a poll was held sometime in the next 15 to 20 years, an additional 10% said yes, they would or they might. So that brings that up to a possible 51%. And that's opposed to 48% of those surveyed who said that they wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. 11% said they didn't know or weren't sure. Let's uh, speak uh, to Rory O'Murakou, Sinn Féin TD in Louth and East Mead. A very good morning to you, Rory O'Murakou, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Would it be prudent to go ahead with uh, a poll uh, for as long as the figures who want to remain part of the United Kingdom in Northern Ireland are as high as they are at 48%? You'd have to bring that down to ridiculously small numbers if you were to avoid conflict, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd have to be talking about 2 or 3%. Michael, uh, I don't think you're going to die a shock on what I'm going to say now. Um, look, the Sinn Féin line is absolutely clear in relation to we believe the time is right to call a referendum. Now, we've called for a lead-in time. We don't want a Brexit-type referendum. We want all those questions that people are going to have that they will be asked. Heavy lifting has to be done by the Irish government. We need a civil service to do a piece of work like was done in Scotland before the referendum, where they produced a huge document called Scotland's Future. We need that to be done. We need the shared island unit to become something more real in relation to the research work it's doing. Some good work, but uh, to paraphrase somebody else, a lot more to do. Um, And we definitely need that there is a forum, be it a citizens' assembly, or be it the shared island dialogue expanded properly to deal with the constitutional issue. Mm. Because, look, you can see the interest is there. You can see even the percentage that has increased when people say, if this was to happen in a number of years. And that is what we're talking about. Now, my timeline might be slightly different than the questions that were asked, but I think a number of years is all that is needed, that we have a sufficient amount of time that we have the conversations. And then that'll be a case of there will still be a significant amount of people who will be unionist and vote mm. against. But there's also, there's a job for people like me that even if I can't convince them, but that I can at least bring them to a place whereby, for the want of a better term, that they will not be utterly opposed. There's many people who... uh, vote in particular elections and referendums oh, yeah, and they live it, with the result. But that's there's, the reality. There, there's that's, exact, that's democracy. Well, yeah, it may be, but uh, it may not be either. I mean, therein lies the problem because if people are opposed to you in United Ireland, they're utterly opposed to United Ireland. They are British and you're not going to convince them. Well, I, I suppose one of the 
as I said, those pieces and fundamental pieces of the Good Friday Agreement was the fact that it needed to allow for the fact that we all um, we all have a different identity. And at this stage on this island, north and south, you have multiple identities. As I say, it's a very much a different country than but that's, what I grew that, up that, in. That, that was the, the, the beginning of the end of the IRA war, when the IRA conceded defeat. Uh, you're not suggesting going back to war. Um, well, not that I would be making that determination anyway, but also the IRA is completely off the field for the want of a, a better ter- a better term. I know, because but, it conceded no, defeat but, and uh, couldn't be perceived as being a, a terrorist organisation internationally after 9-11. That fed into the thinking of the IRA a, a, at the time, uh, and it gave up its war because it lost the war. Uh, and now you're talking about a situation where uh, you'd be putting this question to people about uniting Ireland. If the question was carried, you would undoubtedly be going back to a situation where there would be conflict. You'd be going back to war unless you reduce that number of 48% of the population of Northern Ireland who want to remain in the United Kingdom to something like 2 or 3%. Well, let's go with this, Michael. Talking about a Scottish referendum that obviously the SNP and others want to happen next year. And right, yeah, we're hearing particular utterances from people vying for leadership of the Conservative Party and to be British Prime Minister. So we'll probably see afterwards what their actual view on that is. But my notion in relation to that is they will have a referendum and the likelihood it will be won and it will not be won on either side with a huge percentage change. Yeah, but it's not comparable. But, but... The the British didn't invade Scotland. I do not foresee a conflict situation. Mm. Look, we all know the history we've had here. And I would say, if we're going to deal specifically with the IRA and the conflict, that that happened within a particular context, no different than what happened over 100 years ago. That's what happened. And neither, yes, I think it's accepted by all that there was no possibility of a military victory for either the IRA or the British forces. So what won out was politics, and a politics that would deliver for people, that they would have their own identities, and that they could strive for what they wanted. Mm. And obviously, from unionist point of view, that was maintaining the union. But look, we've been very, very clear as Republicans that we did not see Good Friday as the end of the road, that this is about delivering on Irish liberation, Irish independence, uniting Ireland, mm. doing the job that actually the Republican getting the British was not able to do 100 get, years get, ago. Getting the and British out. An opportunity then. Mm. Get, getting the British out. Well, here, let's be clear. There's probably a significant amount of British people, even people in British politics, that aren't overly concerned. Mm. Probably well, even remo- an removing, Bri- removing British authority. Mm. Removing British authority. I mean, isn't that what's meant when people say Brits out? Removing British authority, not necessarily yeah, that, people. That's exactly yeah, what, it, what okay. it is. Like yeah. in, but you see, therein it, lies the difference with Scotland, and that's why it's not comparable, because uh, in Northern Ireland you have two distinct identities. People will identify uh, as Irish uh, in the same way you or I would, uh, and people will uh, identify as British. In Scotland, people will identify as Scottish and as British. Uh, and most people would ide- identify as both. I'm going to say there's people who will identify as a lot more um, in the north. There's obviously a huge, like, you, you only have to walk down any street north or south to realise that it's a changed demographic anyway. That's one particular thing. We also have people who probably would sway between some people who see themselves as both 
British. Some of them probably see themselves uh, with some sort of northern identity, but also with an, with an Irish identity. You also have people as well that want to see themselves safely and securely within the European Union. And they are sectioned within what would broadly be termed unionist and nationalist just want to be within the European Union and see that as a far more significant place to be than possibly what has been an absolutely dysfunctional United Kingdom. Now, I would say over its entire history, but particularly over the last number of years when uh, we had Boris Johnson and his literally, all I can say, gameplay politics. Mm. But you're not... uh making uh, the argument for convincing people that they are something other than what they perceive themselves to be. If they believe they are British, how can you tell them they're Irish? And that's the problem. And until that changes, until you get that 48% who want to remain part of the union down to little or nothing, uh, you've got trouble ahead. And and you must uh, accept that that means some form of conflict. And you don't even need to win the poll. You just need to hold the poll or announce that there's going to be a referendum. I don't think anyone has anything to fear from democracy. I think what we're talking about here, and you looked in that poll and you spoke about the fact when people talked about a number of that the Irish unity referendum would happen in a number of years, that percentage went up to 51%. What I am saying is, if we can have a reasonable run in time, if all the information can be put out there, then those that make the arguments on either side will be able to, like any other election or any other referendum, people will move. And there's probably a significant amount of people that are open to that who who vote in all, who vote for all parties. There will be some people who are absolutely committed, as I would be to, an, to, to um, a 32-county republic, mm. and there are people who are committed to being unionist. There are, and also, we will, and like I said about the Good Friday Agreement, the idea is we need to create a place afterwards in New Ireland in which that British identity can be protected and those people can still be secure and whatever cultural parts that they see as being absolutely vital, mm. you know what I mean, to them, we need to, we need to be able to provide. And again, that's a discussion, that's a mm. negotiation, and that will take, that's not something we're going to sort out in this radio interview. Mm. But I am okay, so quite, and, and here's the thing, seeing a referendum, that is also at that point in time that a British government and a British state is accepting that whatever the result is, they are going to abide by that. So at the end of the day, I'm not quite sure who, like when you talk about a war situation, I'm not mm. quite sure who's going to actually be fighting who. I don't foresee that situation. Can I make a determination that nothing bad will ever happen in relation to the net, you know, the future history of Ireland? Of course, nobody can, but we don't see it that it's going to be the conflicts that we've had over many centuries. We are in a completely different place. From our point of view, there is a peaceful, democratic way to deliver on Irish unity, but it's an Irish unity that delivers for everybody. And that will be our job. And that will be to convince enough people to vote for it, but also enough people to realise what will happen afterwards, even if it's a result they don't want, that it is something that they can live with. And then after that, it's about ensuring prosperity for all our people. Across the board. Okay, but why so would be more hopeful than yourself? Mike? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's quite possible uh, that in fifteen or twenty years' time, uh, that uh, a, a poll could be won uh, that people might actually vote for uh, a United Ireland. I'm not sure how possible, but I think it is possible. 
Yeah, but, there's, uh, but, uh, there's more work to be done. Yeah, and the government but, has absolutely failed to do that heavy lifting. But if you so assume... I call on them to, to lift their game. Yeah, but even if you assume that was to happen, um, I think it's inevitable that there would be some sort of armed response and you'd be entering into a period of conflict. I, I think I had this discussion before. First of all, the British government would be gone. The British army would be gone. We are not dealing with the situation we were dealing with in the 1980s. Um, there is the RUC doesn't exist as the entity that existed before. And um, whatever difficulties there may be with the PSNI, mm. it is not what the RUC was. The UDR is not there. We are not dealing with Ulster resistance importing weapons. We are not dealing with the. We are not dealing. We we don't foresee a situation where. And let's be clear. Like the level of infiltration in relation to loyalist paramilitaries was huge. It was at the top end. I suppose there was a certain logic in that, and they were directed, supported, and armed at times by the British state. So if that's not the case, you're dealing with a different set of circumstances. And also, there's a considerable mm. amount of people that do not want to go back to where we were before in mm. any way, shape, or form. I know, but, you're, but you've got to look at turning the tables. Uh, and We have a piece of work to mm. do, undoubtedly. Yeah. Mm. See the bigger the percentage? of people that are willing to vote for United Ireland, that's happy days. We all know that there are business people who see the advantage at the minute of the Irish protocol. We know that there are farmers that are deeply uneasy about the circumstances they're in since they've been taken out with the European Union, considerable amount of them in the unionist community. They're there. There's a job for us to convince those people and to convince them that we will, we're talking about a new Ireland that has a space for them and that where they can be British unionists, call it what you will, you know what I mean, that their culture um, is absolutely secure. So I, I don't see any particular difficulty with that. There's a huge piece of work for us to do. But again, there are certain pieces that need to be done that only states can do. And that's a fact that we need, be it a citizens' assembly, um, as I say, are an expanded shared island dialogue, and we need a significant piece of work done by the civil service from a point of view of producing, you know, a question of what everything will look like. And then we're going to have to have a discussion because even if a referendum is passed and even if we have a run in time, mm. there's going to be transitional structures and whatever. And like as somebody said, the difficulty you would even have in relation to and melding the northern education system with the southern education system. But none of this is beyond us. Look at the issues that are happening in Europe at this point in time. Look at the issues that happened if we go back 50, 70 years ago. Mm. You know, we, we, we all saw... You know, I, I grew up at a point in time when nobody thought that uh, the Berlin Wall would fall and that Germany would re reunite it, you know? Mm. I also never thought I would see... Uh, referendum in Scotland and I never thought that I would see the percentages that are now looking for Scottish independence and see if that's to happen. I imagine that even psychologically would change circumstances in relation to a number of people in the okay. unionist community. Uh, maybe the unionists will want to join Scotland if that's the case but uh, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning as always. Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath, Rory O'Murku. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, a humanitarian crisis is expected on a catastrophic 
scale in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya and uh, Somalia. And we're looking at literally thousands of people uh, who are at risk of dying from starvation. Paul O'Brien of Plan International Ireland is on the line. A very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You've just returned from Somalia, I think, or Somaliland, uh, which is a de facto state in Somalia. That's right, uh, Michael. Uh, good morning to you and your listeners. Uh, yeah, I was out there at the end of uh, July uh, for a week, uh, just going around to see what the situation was like and meeting those affected by the crisis. And really, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in terms of, you know, the numbers of carcasses for cattle, sheep and goats uh, dead around the place. You know, they're into their fourth, fifth year of drought. And I know we talk about drought here in Ireland and the garden gets a bit brown. Mm. And we talk about hose pipe bans and things like that. But this is an area that's you know, hasn't really received uh, rain in the last four or five years. So the water table is incredibly low. Water is such an important thing, but the combination of the climate change, the COVID and conflict has really kind of exacerbated the whole situation. So it was fairly dire, to be quite Mm. honest. Okay, Uh, and people will remember uh, times of uh, drought in the past and the crisis in Ethiopia, indeed, in the 80s. uh, But they're saying this is on a a similar scale. It's the worst drought in 40 years. It's the worst drought in 40 years. And and I suppose what really struck me, Michael, was, was the number of ordinary people talking about climate change. And I know maybe listeners will turn off, and particularly farmers, and I come from farming background myself, and if my brother down there is listening in North Tipperary, if he hears it, he'll be given out to me later on. But listen, I, I, I suppose, you know, ordinary people were talking about climate change, and they were saying, listen, 30, 35 years ago, they would have maybe four or five years of reasonably good rain and then one year of bad rain and with their animals they could survive you know they had a coping mechanism that they would sell a few more animals and buy food during that bad year Mm. whereas now they're saying is what they're getting is four or five years of very poor rains and maybe one year of good rain so they're you know normally we hear scientists and we hear government people or whatever talking about climate change but I have never heard it in my 35 years in this work ordinary people just uh, really been able to point a finger and say listen this what's happening is the climate is changing and their whole way of life as pastoralists because in that whole area you know of what's yeah, exactly as you referred to the Horn of Africa which is you know Ethiopia Somalia and Kenya like there's a lot of pastoralists in that area who have lived their lives herding cattle and moving for pasture from one area to another and like they were able to survive whereas now their whole livelihood has been completely threatened and many of those have lost their herds and have become in our technical language we call internally displaced so they just don't have a livelihood anymore and they become dependent and that's the group that we're really worried most about they and their children mm, yeah, and of course Plan International works uh, with children and that's uh, where your focus will be uh, how long did you spend in Somaliland? I was there for a week, but I had been, you know, I had been in that region before. So I had traveled a lot of Somalia actually before, even back during the kind of the worst of the crises. So I had been in Mogadishu. I'd been in places like Merka and Baidoa. So I'm quite familiar with the country. 
and quite familiar with. I'd lived in Kenya, gone back quite a few years ago myself in a very semi-arid area. Again, would have seen how people coped with a bad year of rain and how they would adjust their lifestyle. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's tough because people, they eat maybe one meal a day if they have food or they actually end up buying poorer quality food. Um, so there's there's coping mechanisms that people have used in the past. And I remember seeing mm. that in action. But now what we're seeing is a lot of those coping mechanisms are just not working anymore and mm. it's really becoming dire in quite a number of those communities. Well, you painted a, a fairly vivid picture of uh, carcasses of uh, cattle on the streets and that sort of thing. Um, tell us a, a little bit about the day-to-day experience of people there that you witnessed uh, because we can't live without water ourselves. We have to drink water uh, and how do you get water in order to do that? And how do you get water then to feed your animals and your crops and all of the other things that we use it for as well? Well, what we're doing at the moment, so I suppose we're doing two main things to try and help people cope. We're, we're actually trucking water into the area, uh, literally with what looks like, uh, I suppose here you could call them fuel trucks. So they're, each of those trucks we're able to fill with water and we're able to take it out into villages and we're able to do that twice a week into different villages and literally let the let the trucks empty into a big tank that's being specifically constructed in the ground. And people come along and they take water themselves. Actually, they take it very, very quickly because I was there and I would have seen a delivery of water while, while I was there. And, you know, that's, that happens twice a week. And that allows people to stay in that area with the few animals that, have, uh, that are left. And then while we were there, we were able to just walk around the villages and see what, you know, the, the homesteads and the places, they call them bomas, where people would have held cattle. And I remember looking in at, uh, and I asked the, the, the owner, the woman, and she said, you used to have 40 cattle. And when I looked in, there was three left. And no joke, and Michael, they were like kind of skinny dogs, to be honest. They were like mm. rabid dogs is the best way I could describe those three cattle. Mm. You know, they're nothing like what you'd see down in the county of Meath or whatever. They're yeah. just, they were just skin and bone, and I'd say they were nearly gone as well. Mm-hmm. So the and, water what then, Paul? In, what, what then when the three cows are gone? What, what well, then? That's, that's the thing, I suppose. What we're trying to do as well is, is, is give people cash grants. You know, like there's no dole in Somalia. So what we do is, is put cash into people's hands. And, and this is a thing I try and explain to people, but, but famine and hunger is not always about the lack of food or the uh, unavailability of food. In many cases, there's food available in markets, but people just don't have the money to buy it. So if we put cash into people's hands for a number of months, we're able to keep them going. They're able to plan, they're able to do things. And particularly if we put into women's hands, they will buy food for the family and they will buy what they need which is mostly food, but also other things uh, like some soap and things like that, washing soap and things. So they will buy things that they need. So we're essentially almost trying to provide a dole system for people during this really lean period. And at the same time, we're trying to look at small businesses for a lot of those people uh, by looking at grants uh, to set up a small business. And in some cases, that can be teaching uh, women how to run a small business so literally if you buy a big bag of food yourself mm. 
uh, in, in bulk. Then you break it down into smaller bags and you sell it for a little profit and things like that. So it's to try and give people another means of making a living and that as well. And that's really the sort of medium, longer term solution that we're looking at in this area too. Right. Uh, the United Nations are saying that 22 million people are at risk of starvation in the Horn of Africa. You're saying when you extend that out uh, and bring in countries like Yemen, Afghanistan and Haiti, you're talking about 800 million people who are at risk of starvation. Do these people not matter or why, why is this not um, lead story uh, uh, on news bulletins and front page news? I mean, we hear so little about it. Uh, I uh, honestly, I'd say, Michael, this is one of my greatest frustrations is that I listen to the radio uh, constantly. I cycle to work and I listen sometimes to RT in the mornings and I'm hearing stories. I was hearing about a Wally gone missing up in Northern Ireland this morning and I was just asking myself, you know, where are we got? Have we lost perspective? I don't think we're getting the level of coverage that we would have. You mentioned, you know, Ethiopia going back. And I remember Ethiopia distinctly, and I remember the level of coverage, and I, and I remember, you know, the BBC journalist that went out there and took those photographs. What we don't have at the moment is journalists going into these countries and taking the pictures and sending those pictures back. I'm afraid, you know, with many of our news outlets, there's, there's budgetary constraints, and there isn't the same level of interest, we think, in the developing world that there was uh, going back years ago maybe with the huge numbers of missionaries, nuns and priests that were out there, there was a lot of interest, whereas now I don't think there's as much. I would kind of almost go to say that COVID has made us look far too inward-looking at ourselves and Mm -hmm. our own surroundings almost, and we're not as interested in in the bigger, badder world uh, and looking out at what's going on. There's an awful lot of interest trying to raise this. Mm, There's an an awful lot of interest in Ukraine, uh, and so there should be, Uh, but uh, you'd wonder if uh, the difference between the two situations in the world and the interest that people have in those situations comes down to skin colour. I think that's something that has dawned on us as well and we're very conscious, you know, in terms of the, you know, how people have been treated. You know, we've had about 10,000 people here before the Ukrainians came in who are living in direct provision and they're coming from different countries, be it Afghanistan, be it parts of Africa. And the way they are treated compared to the way that the Ukrainians are treated is is like chalk and cheese. And it is something, I think, in some ways for the government to answer. So, you know, Ukraine is not a part of Europe, but people look kind of quite like us. And so we're much quicker to welcome them, whereas we've been a lot more suspicious of people of a darker skin. And I think that's a real question for society to ask. Why have we treated, why have we a two-tier, we talk about our two-tier health system, we very much have a two-tier refugee system and, and that as well in our country. Okay. Uh, you uh, are part of a, an international organisation and Plan International is working in the Horn of Africa and if uh, people do want to help, if they are interested, uh, you're working there, as I say, and uh, you'd appreciate any support that people can offer you. Of course we would, Michael. Our, 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 I suppose our website is the first post of call if people can. It's www.plan.ie if people wish to donate. Particularly we're looking for resources around provision of water. And But we also, let me be honest and fair, I think the Irish government have given us money on that as well for responding to the crisis in Somalia too, which we're using over the next number of weeks and that as well, to push those cash grants into people's hands and to push money for starting up small businesses and that as well, to try and keep these people going with a 
with a viable livelihood and new livelihood uh, that they never envisaged having or didn't want to have, but just have to have because of the the climate change situation where their pastoralism is just no longer viable, in my humble opinion. Mm, yeah, we're uh, changing lives. Our lives are changing because of what's happening and lives, uh, millions of lives at risk of ending as a result of it for that matter. Paul, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Paul O'Brien of Plan International Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Right, now, as, as usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. We're joined uh, for the report uh, this week by Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station. And we're going to begin with a number of burglaries. Uh, the first of these in Atboy. Yes, Michael. So Guardian at Boy are investigating a burglary that happened in the courtyard area of At Boy on Thursday the 18th between 4 and 6pm. When the homeowner returned home, they realised the house had been broken into and a number of items stolen. If you're in the area between 4 and 6 and noticed anything suspicious, we're asking you to please contact Cows Garda Station on 046-924-0999. Next to Dundalk to report on a burglary. This happened on the Avenue Road. Yes, yeah, so Dundalk are they investigating that burglary that happened between 10.30am and 12 noon on Avenue Road last Friday the 19th of August. Again, if you're in the area or saw anything suspicious or just out, out of the ordinary, we're asking you to contact Guardian Dundalk at the station on 042-9388-400. Indeed, Guardian and Dundalk uh, would be keen to hear from anybody who might have information about a second robbery in the town. This one at Trade of View. Yes, so this burglary happened at Trade of View between 1.30pm and 2pm on Saturday, the 20th of August, so a relatively short period of time. The occupants returned home to find that all the rooms had been rummaged through and a number of items stolen. Again, if you saw any suspicious activity in the area, or you can help in any way to identify the suspects, you're asked to contact Gardaí at Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200. We have a number of incidents of criminal damage to report on this week, and the first of these occurred in Kilbrew and Ashburn. Yes, Gardaí and Ashburn are investigating an incident that happened in the early hours of Thursday, the 18th of August. So a car was set on fire outside a home in Kilbrew, now, this caused damage to the front of the house as well. So if you were in the area between midnight and 1am, would you have seen anything or would you have dash cam footage? You can contact Ashburn Gardaí with any information on 01 Okay, for the next incident, we go to St. Finian's Terrace in Navan. Yes, Gardaí and Navan Garda Station are investigating a number of incidents of arson that happened at St. Finian's Terrace in the early hours of Saturday morning. At approximately 4.40am, the fire brigade and Gardaí attended a scene where six cars were on fire. Again, if you were in the area, maybe you have dash cam or CCTV footage that might be of assistance in our investigations. We're asking you to please contact Navangarda Station on 046-907-9930. And the final report of criminal damage occurred in Mullatlow in RD. That's right. So Gardaí in Ardy Garda Station are investigating a fire in a derelict house in Mullinaclough area. Again, happened in the early hours of Saturday morning. So if you were in the area between 1am and 2am, 
were asking that maybe you might have dash cam footage or saw anything out of the ordinary or suspicious. Our Garda station can be contacted on 041-6853222. Okay, before you leave us uh, this week, I, I know that you want to offer some advice to our, our listeners. We're all used to getting funny phone calls uh, and uh, some people have fallen victim to scams as a result. Yes, Michael, and I suppose we're finding now with the banking changes and people changing, changing accounts, we are getting phone calls. Um, but it's just if you're getting a phone call that you're not expecting, hang up if a caller tre- it pressures you, claims that urgent action is needed for your account or threatens any sort of negative consequence. You could always ask a relative or a friend or ring a guard station and see do they think the call was genuine. If a call or text message claims to be from a bank or a government agency or somebody you may have done business with us with them, don't engage with that message or you know a call at your phone. Instead, end the conversation, look up their official contact details and contact them back to verify it. We're asking people to remember not to give out any personal details over the phone um, when you've been contacted. Don't follow instructions from recorded messages. And be wary of receiving multiple calls or missed calls from the same unfamiliar number. Don't call back that number or indeed any number you don't recognise where somebody hasn't left you a voicemail. If you do happen to click on a, a web link from a text or an email, close down the web page. Don't follow any of the instructions that are on it. And never use a number given to you by a caller. Again, try to verify it independently. And if you are unfortunate enough that you have fallen victim to one of these very convincing scammers, do contact your financial institution and your local guard station where we will take the necessary steps. Okay, because they can be very convincing and uh, I think sometimes people don't report them because they're embarrassed uh, but uh, they will be treated, uh, of course, uh, with a lot of interest by the authorities who who want to get to the bottom of this because these people are so convincing and uh, would want to make sure, if possible, that nobody else will fall victim. Uh, Very important to to make contact, even if uh, it seems past time to do so. But thank you indeed for that advice, uh, Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station, and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Before we leave you today, thanks to Betty, who was uh, in touch with us earlier uh, about uh, the killing of uh, that young man in Monaster Evan, a, a dreadful thing. A few people in touch with us about that. But Betty's saying uh, she thinks that the people involved uh, will end up getting a, a light sentence and that that's the problem here. Uh, they'll be sent to the Mount Joy Hotel, as she puts it, um, uh, really nothing for the uh, punishment uh, in terms of what's been done Uh, they should be half starved and work to the bone when they're in prison uh, and uh, treated for their crimes in a way that is fitting says Betty. Thank you indeed. That's the final word on the programme today. Our time has run out and as God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237.